Today we want to talk again about the theme of transformation, the transformed thief. So many times I've driven south, and along the highways you'll often see three crosses. The center one is usually white, the other two are gold. It reminds us of when the Lord Jesus was crucified and the two thieves that died with him. The Bible speaks of them in Luke in chapter 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what, we deserve, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. In my recollection, the first time I remember really even giving thought to what we often term the thief on the cross, and we're particularly referring to the repentant thief who asked Jesus to remember him, is when I was about fourth or fifth grade, I was in a Christian organization, something like a Christian uh, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, called Boys Brigade. And growing up in Southern California, we went up to Los Angeles to Forest Lawn, which is a huge memorial park that includes a museum with several large sacred paintings. And you can tour the museum. They even have talks about the various paintings and so on. And I remember this huge span of a portrait or a picture of the crucifixion and them talking about the Lord Jesus and then the thieves on the cross. And it was suggested at that time that according to legend, the repentant thief, or we'll call him the transformed thief, was named Demas. Now, down through church history, as you study uh, traditions about this transformed thief, you'll find him called Demas or Dismas, or Demarcus. And he has all kinds of stories written about him, none that we can verify as true. Uh, everything from being a murderous criminal to being a Judean Robin Hood, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. And that's why he was arrested and then condemned and then crucified. Probably the loveliest legend about him, according to William Barclay, was that when the little Lord Jesus and the Holy Family, Joseph and Mary, fled from Bethlehem and the rampage of the slaughter of the innocents by Herod the king, they escaped down into Egypt. And this story says that on the way, they encountered a band of robbers. And some of the robbers wanted to kill the Holy Family. But the son of the captain of the robber band was taken with the little Lord Jesus. And he rescued the family from the murderous intentions of these uh, robbers and spared their lives and in essence said to the little Lord Jesus, O most beautiful of children, if you and I should ever meet again, please remember me. And some have suggested that that memory did take place on the cross between this older criminal now and the Lord Jesus Christ. While we don't know for sure that any of that is true, we do know what is true in what the Bible says about the thief. 
First of all, he was a renegade. A renegade, a renegade basically is a lawless person. One who really has no uh, concern about faith or has concern about obeying the law. In fact, it would be criminal or rebellious in nature. And the Bible tells us that this man, at least twice in the Scriptures, is a robber or a criminal. Matthew 27 and verse 44, the Bible says one of the robbers, uh, the robbers that were there with the Lord Jesus on the cross. And then it says in our text today, he was a criminal. And so we know that he had broken the law. He was a sinner in that sense. But beyond that, perhaps we might read the Scriptures and think his greatest sin was that, first of all, he, like the other thief, had taunted and mocked and ridiculed the Lord Jesus Christ, even while all three of them are hanging on the cross. You see, the Bible says again in Matthew 27, 44, Mark 15 and verse 32, that both of the thieves or robbers hanging there with him were taunting him. And you know, you would think that is the greater sin. In fact, that would be the greatest sin. In the Son of God's greatest hour of earthly agony, there on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, suffering the crucifixion of the Romans, and, and experiencing the wrath of God, this man is mocking him. He's a sinner. But I want to remind you, if you study Mark 15, that these two thieves were not the only ones marking Christ that day. The Bible says the soldiers mocked him. The Bible says the crowd, the everyday folks like you and I that were milling about the cross and the crucifixion that day, they stuck out their tongues, wagged their heads at him, and they mocked him. And then also we find that even the religious authorities of the Jewish people mocked the Lord Jesus. So before we're too hard on the thief for his mockery and taunting of Christ upon the cross, let us not forget that many what we would consider good people did the same thing. It's just quite a simple reminder that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. In that sense, we are all renegades. But in a sense as well, that's good news. Because the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16, he said, this is a trustworthy saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst. He said, but God saved me to show his mercy to those who would believe in him through Christ. And so, yes, he's a renegade, but we're all renegades. We've all broken the laws of God. We've all come short. And hallelujah that Christ saves sinners. Doug read earlier how in Isaiah 53 it is prophesied that Christ would be crucified with the sinners. The Bible says that he was numbered with the transgressors. To the average person looking at those three crosses that day, they're th seeing three criminals up there. One, two, three. To the average person, they all deserve crucifixion. And the Lord Jesus is hanging there with criminals. Why would the Heavenly Father ordain that His Holy Son would hang with transgressors? I don't know that we can know completely for sure, but may I suggest, first of all, it is illustrative of the humility of our Savior. 
that is demonstrated all the way through his earthly existence. The Bible says in Philippians 2 and verse 8, he humbled himself. We see that first where he came from earth or from heaven, which is perfect, down to this sinful and imperfect earth. He was born in a manger among animals, humble. The Bible says he grew up among a conquered people, humbled. He lives in an obscure village in a despised area. Did not Nathaniel say, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Did not the chief leaders of the religious people say, no prophet arises out of Galilee, a despised area? When he began to minister, the people who knew him best from his community said, what's with this guy? We know him. How can he talk like this and teach like this? He's just the carpenter's son, humbled. And then finally he comes, and the Bible says, humbled to the death of the cross, but not just on the cross, but with other criminals being crucified, showing his great humility to go through all of that for you and I to be saved. But not only his humility, I think it's his identity as well. You see, the Lord Jesus is identified with sinners. The Bible says wonderfully in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. You see, Christ identified with sinners because he came to save sinners and he took our sins in our place upon the cross. Renegade, the thief absolutely was. Renegades, you and I, having broken the law of God, and yet Christ came to save renegades like him and like us. What brought about the reversal? How did this thief, who is literally hours from death, who has been a criminal and has been condemned and has already been mocking and taunting the Lord Jesus Christ, how come all of a sudden there's this reversal and he now is repentant and now transformed and now has Christ to remember him and condemns the other thief for his mockery. How does this reversal take place? Well, first of all, may I suggest that perhaps as he heard the first saying of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It stirred his heart. Doug has often taught us as a congregation, it is not only how we live, it is how we die. And perhaps in watching how Christ was dying, the man was smitten, smitten with the spirit of forgiveness that Christ demonstrated toward those who were crucifying him. Perhaps beyond that, he looks at the saying that is written above the cross of Jesus, for Pilate had penned, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the high priest and the religious leaders protested and say, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say, he said, I'm the king of the Jews. But Pilate for once stood up and said, what I've written, I've written. And you know what? What he had written was absolute truth. If you'll remember back to when Jesus was little, the wise men had come and said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? 
And the Lord Jesus now identified as king of the Jews. And this thief, perhaps reading that, in his heart is smitten with whom Christ really is. And you know, I thought about the times when the gospel has been written and it's been shared, whether it's a gospel tract or a dear friend that's now with the Lord, Fred Berghorst. For years, Fred kept a large billboard along a main highway in Michigan, and it said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And Fred, much older than I, we would sit together, and he'd say, Tim, I wonder if I'm going to meet people in heaven who read that billboard and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've seen billboards in our area. Evangelist Dave Hinton puts them out. You might not do what Dave does, but I wonder how many people will read those songs and say, Jesus said, you must be born again. And perhaps that's what the Lord uses to turn their hearts to him. I don't know. Maybe the thief looked at what was written and he said, this is the king. And he turned to Christ. But I do know this. His reversal ultimately was the responsibility of the Lord Almighty. You see, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 14, I'm sorry, John 6 and verse uh, 14, the Lord, or 65, John 6, 65, the Lord Jesus said, you cannot come to me except my Father enables you. And so ultimately it wasn't anything within the thief. It wasn't anything the thief did. It was God at work in the heart of this man, even on the cross where he's dying, and turned his heart to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you cannot come to me except my Father enable you. The Bible says in Acts 16 and verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. When In Matthew 16 and verse 14, when Peter makes his confession and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So God worked on the heart of this thief to turn him to Jesus Christ, from taunting Christ to trusting Christ. Doug was helpful in loaning me a book, uh, The Seven Sayings of Jesus, uh, The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. And in it, A.W. Pink, a wonderful theologian and godly man of time past, uh, Brother Pink said there were seven things that show us the reversal that God brought about in the heart of this thief. Number one, the thief came to understand there is a final judgment. You see, he says to the other thief, don't you fear God? I mean, listen, they've already been condemned. They've already been crucified. Is there any more that human authority can do to them? No. But he still says, don't you realize we're still going to give an account to God for what we're doing? He said, don't you fear God? There is a final judgment. Number two, the thief realized his own sinfulness. He said, what we're getting, we deserve. We have been punished justly. You know, my dad as an evangelist has often been asked, do you find it hard to get people saved? He said, no, I find it hard to get them lost. He said, because once they realize they're a sinner, then perhaps they're more open to being saved. But if they don't think they need to be saved, this thief understood he was properly condemned for his sinfulness and his criminality. Number three, he realized the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. He said, this man has done nothing amiss. And Pink pointed out how many times in the final hours of Jesus' earthly life, even mankind acknowledged his sin sinlessness. Pilate says, I find nothing wrong with him. His wife said, have nothing to do with this just man. The soldier who crucified him said, surely this was the Son of God. And the thief says, 
this man has done nothing amiss. He's without sin. And then he also realized not only Christ's sinlessness, but he realized Christ's Godhead or his deity. Now, if you have a King James Version or a New King James, you'll find him saying, Jesus, Lord, remember me. If you have the NIV or ESV and so on, you won't find that because there is a textual difference between the received text and the, uh, and the Alexandrian text. I'm not going to get into all that, but I'm going to safely say that I believe somehow this thief understood that Jesus was the Lord. And you know what the Bible says. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord. Or if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And somehow this thief understood this is much more than just a man. And then the thief also understood Christ's saving ability. He says, Lord, remember me. And Pink suggests that in that he's saying, Lord, save me. Lord, I need you. Lord, don't forget about me. Lord, help me. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord Jesus, remember me. He realized that Christ could help him. And then he realized that Christ was king because he said, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And then finally, he believed that Christ was coming again. In other words, he believed there was a life beyond that cross. It wasn't just dead and then done. No, no, he believed Jesus had a life beyond that cross and that he would come back with his kingdom. I mean, he basically believed everything you possibly theologically, technically would need to understand to be saved. And it was the reversal of God in his heart and his life to see his own sin and his judgment before God, but that Christ could save him, the King and the Lord and the Savior, and he would come in his kingdom. Lord, when you do, remember me. And you know, that seems like such a simple prayer. And then I say to every one of us this morning, our prayer need be no more ornate than that to be saved. Lord, remember me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, save me. And then finally, I see the reward. The Lord Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. This man is crucified on a cross. I mean, I don't know how it can get much worse than that. To be hanging by nails on a tree, and soon they will come and break his leg so he will suffocate. I mean, you talk about a terrible death. You talk about the ultimate terrible situation. And yet the Lord Jesus is saying, in just a few moments, in just a little while, today you're going to go from the cross to my kingdom. Today! You know, there's a wonder about the immediacy of God's salvation, how you can be a child of hell one moment, but then trusting Christ, you become a child of heaven. How you can be the child of the devil one moment, but trusting Christ, you become the child of God. This absolute turnaround, demonstrated, condemned, and crucified. But today, you'll be with me. You'll be with me. I think that's my favorite part of the whole text. He didn't say, 
Today you'll be in heaven. He said, today you'll be with me. And you know, I want you to understand that when you are saved and you leave this life, that you are immediately, somehow, biblically, in the presence of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 7 and verse 59, Stephen, as he stoned, says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul said, Philippians 1.23, to depart and be with Christ is far better. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, to be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. John 14 verses 2 and 3, Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Friend, you're not just going to show up somewhere in glory land. You're going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise came from a Persian term for a walled garden. The Persian kings and all of their wealth and all of their majesty had these beautiful gardens that were the amazing epitome of refreshment and beauty and wonder and peace. And if you were invited into paradise, it not only meant you got to experience all that glory of the garden, but it also meant you were a companion of the king. Here is a man who people hate for his crimes. Here is a man that the government of that day said, you are worthy of death. Here is a man that soldiers nailed to a cross. But here is a man, by the grace of Christ, who will now be a companion of the king in paradise. That's the wonder of salvation. Whatever our sins, whatever our struggles here, if we are saved, when we enter the next life, we are with him as a companion in a glorious place forever and ever. I want to leave you with four thoughts today. Number one, some people think that if you're going to get saved, you've got to kind of prepare for it. They think, you know, I, 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 I need to know more. I'm not theologically or biblically knowledgeable enough yet. Or they may think, you know, I, I just I need to get a little better before I ask God to save me. I'm pretty bad right now. Let me tell you something. This thief was about as bad as you could get. He really didn't have any time to prepare to be saved. It was now or never. Number two, interestingly, there was no proof afterwards. He didn't get down off that cross and start going to church. He didn't get down off that cross and start memorizing the Bible. He didn't get down off that cross and say, hey, okay, all you thieves, let's have a prayer meeting. No, you see, he died right there on that cross. So you know what? It wasn't his preparation beforehand that helped him get saved. It wasn't any proof afterwards that showed he was saved. It was all based on the promise of Christ.
And let me tell you something. If you or I get to heaven, you know why? It won't be because of anything we've done. It'll be purely by the promise of Christ. That he died for us, he rose for us, and if we believe in him, he will save us. Number two. It's interesting. John 19, 18, the Bible says Jesus is on the middle cross. There's a thief on one side, there's a thief on the other. And I think in a simple gospel way, that depicts the whole issue of salvation in this life. There are those who receive Christ and those who reject Christ. And I just want to ask each one of you this morning, on which side are you? We used to sing a little song when I was a boy in Sunday school. One door and only one, and yet the sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? Are you on the side of those who continue to say, I don't need Christ, or he's good, he's nice, and all that, but I'm fine without him. Or not right now. Or are you those who become desperate to realize, apart from Christ, there's no hope of forgiveness or eternal life. Lord Jesus, save me. Remember me. Help me. I need you. On which side are you? Which thief represents your soul before the Lord? Thirdly, I want you to remember it's not too late to be saved. No matter how old you are, you may be too old to do a lot of things you used to do, but you're not too old to be saved. You may be really bad. You may have done some really bad things, but you're not bad enough that you can't be saved. You say, man, I'm so down right now. You can't get down far enough that God can't save you through Christ. I like what the poet William Camden wrote. He talked about a man who was riding a horse and fell off the horse to his death. And he wrote, Betwixt the stirrup and the ground, mercy I ask, mercy I found. Even in the last moment, I'm sure Doug and perhaps Jerry and others have experienced what I have at times, where I've been called to the deathbed just recently at the deathbed of an individual. And I shared with them, again, God's simple plan of salvation. It's not too late to trust Christ. But dear friend, if you die without Christ, all my understanding from the scripture is then it will be too late. So trust Christ now. And then finally, as I read this, it, it stirred me with hope. Not only that it's not too late to be saved, but it's not too late in the transformation of our lives now. You know, you may be feeling like you're on a cross this morning. Maybe on a cross emotionally. I mean, you just feel nailed to the cross. Maybe in your finances. Maybe in a relationship. Maybe in your health. You just feel like you are like that thief. You are nailed to the cross and there's no hope. I want to say to you this morning, I believe there's hope. Now, you may come off that cross in hope and still bear the marks of the crucifixion you've just been involved with. But I still believe there are hope and there are solutions to transform the life you're living now to be better, to be more enjoyable, to appreciate more of the grace of God. So I want to say to all of us this morning, as we look at the transformed thief, it's not too late. There's still hope. Hope to be saved. Hope to be transformed.
The songwriter said it this way, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his bed. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away.